0: Well, if you would please grab your Bible as we turn our attention to the Word of God and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to be spending our time in the closing paragraph of that chapter, which runs from verse 42 down through verse 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through verse 47. As you find your place there, I wanted to get us off the ground this morning by considering with you a particular set of data. And this data comes to us from an evangelical survey centered specifically around this question, quote, what does the average American look for in a church? That's the question. What does the average American look for in a church? And of course, the goal of that survey, the goal of that study was to come away from the research with what? Well, with a pinpointed answer to that question. Now, can I share some of the findings with you this morning? Let me share some of the findings with you. Here's the first thing that came back. Apparently, the number one thing that Americans look for in a church, you know what it was? was the friendliness of the people? Are the people nice? Were the people welcoming? Was the usher team and the greeting team and the traffic team and the hospitality team and the coffee team and every other team on their game? And that was the number one thing. Here's the second one. Secondly, coming in just behind the friendliness of the people was the children's program. Specifically, was Sunday school fun and engaging for the kids? Number three was the excellence of the worship music. Number four, the relevancy of the sermons. Number five, the quality of the pastors. I'll just give you a couple more for curiosity's sake. Uh, Things like community outreach, uh, things like diversity of members, denominational affiliation, vibrancy of culture, quality of program, location of nearness, and the list goes on and on. And supposedly, this is what America looks for in a church And maybe even this morning, maybe some of you can identify with that. Like maybe you're you're here today and you're, you're checking things out. You're watching, you're observing, you're seeing if Grace Church might be the place for you and your family. And listen, if that's true of you, then let me just say this. We're so excited you've come, truly. I mean, we are pumped that you're here and we pray you have a wonderful experience this morning. But guys, at the end of the day, whether this is your first time with us, or whether this is your millionth time with us, regardless, the question that I want us to pursue this morning is a little bit different. And that question is not so much what does America look for in a church, not so much what does this group look for in a church, or even what should I look for in a church, because friends, in truth, that's really not the question, is it? No, the question, and here's the one I want us to consider with the time that we have is this one what does God look for in a church in in other words forget the culture right forget the masses forget popular opinion no no if God were to take the survey if God were to answer the questions if God were to fill in the blank what would come back what does God value in a church that's the question as the title of our message goes you can see that in your bulletin what church does God love to bless and so that's where we're headed this morning but before we dive into our passage which I'm so excited to do with you let me first give us our big idea and it goes like this in Acts 2 42 through 47 Luke provides five crucial commitments that we must give our lives to If Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ. And so church, we're going to be seeking to answer that question in a personal way. And not simply what church does God love to bless in a theoretical sense. No, but in light of that, what is God calling each one of us to as church members in order to see this church be that church that is blessed by the Lord? Does that make sense? And in order to do so, we're going to be looking at what I'm calling and I think aptly so, the model church here in Acts chapter 2. All right, and so five commitments. And again, let me just be as clear as can be, not just for the pastors, right, and we get that, not just for the elders, the deacons, the ministry leaders, no, but five commitments for every single church member. If Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ. And so here's the first commitment, you ready? Number one, if Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ. Well, then first, I must give my life to devoted spirituality. To devoted spirituality. And we see this in verse 42, and so let's read there together. Luke says, and they, and of course they there, being in reference to the church, the model church, devoted themselves. Now let's just go ahead and pause right there. Well, church, if you've got a pen in your hand, if you've got a highlighter, some sort of writing device, then I want to invite you to do something, circle, highlight, underline, whatever that looks like for you, but to do something with the word devoted in verse 42, because that's an important word. And really, it's, it's interesting, and I think we all understand this, that obviously, as Luke took to describing this model church, uh, guys, he could have started anywhere he wanted, Right? I mean, think about this think about this with me. Luke could have started by, by speaking about, I don't know, the resume of the church, numbers of souls saved. He could have started by, by speaking about the membership rates of the church skyrocketing. He could have started by speaking about the pastors or, or the preachers or the leaders of the church, but that's not where Luke starts. No, he starts with the devotion of the church, and I think that's significant. He starts not first with what this church did, if you will, but instead with who this church was. And and why might that be? Friends, I think it's because ultimately Luke knows that the fruitfulness of a church, we might say the output of a church will always be without exception in direct correlation to the depth of that church spiritually. And so yes, this was an incredibly productive church, if we want to use that kind of language. It was impressive. Yes, this was uh, an effective church, certainly. but, But Luke starts first with the devotion of this church, I think, because it doesn't want to get it twisted in our minds. Listen, all that this church did was simply the overflow of who this church was. And guys, who this church was, as we just read, was a body of believers devoted to something. This then begs the question, well, what specifically were they devoted to? And Luke's going to give us four things in verse 42. Four things or or four areas of their spiritual lives as a church that they gave supreme devotion towards. And here's the first one. You can see this in the text. It's the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, here's a synonym for that. It's New Testament doctrine. It's what we might call teaching about Christ, teaching about the church, teaching about the Holy Spirit, the way unto salvation, all these things wrapped up in the catch-all apostles' teaching. But really, if we wanted to get even simpler than that, here's what we could say. We could say this, that they were devoted to what? To the word of God, because that's what's going on here. He goes, that's what this was. This was a Bible-believing, Bible-thumping, New Testament-loving church, and they weren't ashamed of that. That's who they were. You see, sometimes I think we'll read through the book of Acts, and I'll even raise my hand here and identify with us in this. And what can begin to happen if we're not careful is we become overly distracted by the miraculous. Anybody else had that experience like you turn the page and, and there's somebody getting healed, you turn the page again, there's somebody getting raised, you turn the page one more time, there's somebody doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and it's awesome, and it's amazing, and it's fascinating, but, but guys, the danger in that is that if we're not careful, we're in to lose sight of, of the very means that propelled this church forward, and what was it? Well, it was the word of God, Amen. It was the word of the living God. In fact, evidently Luke was was so concerned that that we would miss this that three different times throughout the book of Acts, he's going to give us this exact phrase and the word of God increased and multiplied. And, And the word of God increased and multiplied. And the word of God increased and multiplied. Why? Well, because Luke wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt that what was behind this church was something more than mere experience. And what was behind this church was, was something more than, than cool stories and quaint tales. And what was behind this church fundamentally was a God-breathed Bible doing what it does in the lives of God's people. And so that's where this church started. That was their foremost conviction, their foremost devotion to the Word of God. But here's the second one. Secondly, not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, but as verse 42 goes on to say, they were also devoted to the fellowship. To fellowship. Now I'm going to ask you to wait on this one only because we're going to talk about fellowship more later in the message. And so for now, just, just store that away. Write that in your notes. They were devoted to fellowship. Thirdly, Thirdly, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship, and they were devoted to what Luke calls the breaking of bread, which is really just another way of saying communion or the Lord's table. And this was a staple of their gatherings. This is something they they look forward to, more than a ritual, more than a routine, more than just something that they did. This was, for this church, an opportunity, an opportunity to consider Christ and all that he had done on the cross. And we're going to get that same chance later this morning and then fourthly on this list and i love this one it says that they were devoted to what to prayer to prayer this was a praying church this was an interceding church let me say it like this this was a dependent church and that's why they prayed and really that's what this comes down to in fact maybe you found yourself wondering like i have from time to time like man why do some churches pray much and other churches pray little and why do some Christians pray, pray frequently while, while other Christians pray infrequently? And why do some pastors pray with, with zeal and, and energy and confidence while other pastors pray with, with relative indifference and apathy? Well, I think the answer is just this, because some churches, Christians, and pastors recognize their need while others don't. Isn't that true? And while I know that, that none of us would quite say it like that, right? we're, we're not so bold often as to put it into those kinds of words. Guys, nonetheless, isn't that what our prayerlessness sounds like to God? God, I got this. God, I can, I can do this on my own. I'm just you know how educated I am, how, how smart I am, how gifted, charismatic, bold, whatever it might be. And so what happens? Well, the, the church calendar is full. There's a lot going on. People are coming and going. There's, there's music, there's, there's lights, there's, there's stuff happening, but there's almost no fruit to show for it. Why? Well, let me ask you this morning, because in a, in a prayerless church, who gets the glory? Man gets the glory. Programs get the glory. Committees and, and consultants and strategies and whatever else get the glory in church. I think this is why Charles Spurgeon Arguably, the single greatest preacher outside of the Lord Jesus himself was famously quoted as saying this, that he would rather teach one man to pray than teach ten men to preach. Meaning that that Spurgeon would rather teach one man to depend upon the Lord than teach ten men to get up on a stage and do something in their own strength. And I think we could take Spurgeon's quote this morning and adapt it slightly for our purposes and say this, that God Almighty would rather teach one church to pray than teach 10 churches to innovate. That God would rather teach one church to pray than 10 churches to entertain because that's where the power is, right guys? That's where the power lies, not in us, not in our wisdom, our savvy, our strategies. No, the power lies in God and God alone. And so what should we do? Well, we should pray. Pray. We should pray, not begrudgingly, not haphazardly, not inconsistently, but reverently and dependently knowing. And I wonder if we grasp this, even this morning, knowing that if God does not show up, if God does not move on behalf of our prayers, then what are we doing this morning? It's all in vain, right? And so Grace Church, what can we see here in verse 42 from this model church that is worthy of, of our imitation we will simply put we see a devoted spirituality we see a devoted spirituality we see a vigor we see an excitement we see an enthusiasm around the things of God and because of that I think one of the questions that begs to us out of the text is this is that us this morning brother or sister if I can even be more personal is that you this morning Does your life, does my life characterize by devotion to the things of God? And here's one of the best ways I think we we can determine whether or not that's true. Christian, what are you known for? What are you known for? Grandparents. Would your grandkids describe you? as grandma or grandpa who's, who's devoted to this book, who loves the scriptures. Parents, would your kids and in your habits on a Sunday morning, your habits all throughout the week describe you as mom or dad who's devoted to fellowship, to the common means of grace wrapped up in the local church? Students, and you knew I would call on you. I can see you. Would your friends, would your teammates, would your youth group buddies describe you as him or her devoted to prayer? Guys, I guess the question comes down to this. What are we known for? Are we the hunter? Are we the athlete or the coach? Are we the, the working professional? or Are we the straight A student? Are we the, the class clown, the life of the party? Whatever it might be, when people hear our names, they think of what? Oh, that it would be said of us, and even engraved upon our tombstone. Here lies James Prendergast, a devoted disciple of Jesus. Let me give you the second commitment. That is the second commitment that we must give our lives to if Grace Church is going to thrive for Christ, and these will go faster than the first, I promise. And it's this, it's infectious unity. It's devoted spirituality and its infectious unity. Let's keep reading in the text, verse 43. It says, An awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, this is the part I want us to focus on, were together and had all things in common. Well, after briefly describing the miraculous ministry of the apostles in verse 43, Luke then moves to his second commitment of this model church. And again, that was their commitment to unity in verse 44. And he says there that all who believe, speaking of, of course, the entire congregation, the entire gathered church there in Jerusalem, were together, or we could say we're one and had all things in common. And so this was a unified church, wasn't it? This was a spiritually devoted church first, but secondly, this was a unified church. And here's what I love so much about this statement. You wanna know what I love so much about what Luke just told us? I'm willing to bet that in that church then, just like in this church today, that there were in fact superficial things that they didn't have in common. And here's what I mean by that. I'm willing to bet that in that church then, just like in this church today, that there were older people and there were younger people, that there were those who who were especially inclined to the academic and the scholastic, and there were those who were inclined to the athletic and the competitive, that there were those who, who came out of big families and those who came out of small families, those who were wealthy and those who were not, those who were saved out of pagan lifestyles and those who were saved out of pharisaical lifestyles. But here's what's so interesting. Luke doesn't even mention them here. And instead, as, as he takes to describing this model church, all he says is this, man, they had all things in common. And, and how could that be? Uh, how could, could this church, this, this church, much like our own, full of so many different types of people, possibly possess the oneness that is being described here? Well, well, guys, here's our answer. Because despite all their superficial differences, here's what they did have in common. It was their shared love of the Savior And their shared belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And evidently for Luke, for the Holy Spirit who inspired it, for God's word, that was all that was needed. That that was all that was necessary for their unity. And, And here's why I think that's so vital, even for us this morning. Because if you hang around church long enough, any church, this church, whatever church, well, then you're sure at some point to hear something like this. Well, I can never participate in that ministry because those people, they're, they're just not like me. Or well, I can never serve in, in that capacity because, because all who do, they're like this and, and I'm more like that. Or well, I can never, uh, can I be real here? Go to, go to that grace group or find a home in this church or or get along with these pastors because they do this and and I do that and let me just suggest to us this morning this crucial fact that church family if we're going to base our unity off of superficial things and not the gospel of Jesus Christ then GCV we are in big big trouble as a church and not only, listen to this, not only will we, we, will we be disunified, that we will, not only will we not get along, but worse than that, our disunity will begin to speak to the community around us. And here's what it will sound like, that the gospel's not enough to unify Grace Church. That's effectively what we're saying in our disunity. That, that unity equals, in so many words, gospel plus similar life stage. Or that that unity equals gospel plus those who look, talk, and think just like me. Or that unity equals gospel plus those who who hold my convictions or, or those who come out of my theological background or those who speak my language, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, church, may it never be so. May it never be so. No, may we at every juncture, at every opportunity go to war with subtle thoughts like this that maybe I'm more important That maybe my preference reigns. That maybe my opinion looms larger. No, friends, we need to kill those things on the altar of unity. Because here's the truth this morning. It's not about us, right? And praise be to God for that. It's about Him. Him being Christ and His glory and His fame and His renown. But church, He will receive no glory, none, from a disunified people and a disunified church. And so that's number two, the church that God loves to bless is the church that is committed congregation-wide, congregation-wide to infectious unity. Here's number three. Number three, if Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ, well then thirdly, I must give my life to selfless generosity. To selfless generosity, verse 45 goes like this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let me paraphrase. This was a generous church. This was a giving church. This was a church that saw all that they had and all that they earned and really all that they owned, not as theirs, but as whose. It's Christ. As Christ's money, as, as Christ's funds, Christ's resources, and therefore as needs arose within this church as they always do, what was their attitude? I'll meet that need. got a brother or sister in need get me in the game what can i do how can i help what can i give and that was their disposition isn't that amazing and that was how these people were inclined and the question i asked this morning being a curious bible reader is is this why because can we just be honest this morning That's, that's kind of weird humanly speaking right Sell my stuff, distribute my belongings, get rid of my resources to help another. And so why? Or said another way, what produced the radical generosity in this Acts 2 church? Well, the bad news is Luke's not going to tell us explicitly. But the good news is I think the rest of the Bible does. While well, there's certainly much that could be said on this topic, there's obviously much that the Bible has to say when it comes to financial generosity and what provokes that generosity in the life of the believer. But, but just in short with you, uh, I think we can boil things down to three simple words. And those three words are this, stewardship, thankfulness, and faith. Stewardship, thankfulness, and faith. First, stewardship. Why did they give so sacrificially? Well, they did so, I believe, at least in part because they saw themselves not as owners of what they had, but as stewards of what they had. And of course, there's a massive difference there. You see, an owner has something that's theirs. It's their money, it's their time, it's, it's their resources, while the steward, on the other hand, they have something that's been lent to them, in this case, lent to them by God. And so here's the sentiment of the steward. The steward says this, man, all that I have, all that I've been given, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's, it's, it's all God's. And how could they say that? Well, because they rightly understand First Corinthians 4 when Paul tells us, what do I have or what do I possess that I've not been what? Somebody, given, right? And so man, on this point, we can just like work our way down the line. Like my ability, that's provided by God. My opportunity, that's provided by God. My mind, my body, my skills, my intellect, all provided by God and therefore my resources My funds, the number in my bank account, well, in the grand scheme of things, whose is it? It's God's. It's God's. in church, this is what enables the steward to be so generous. This is the secret right here. Because all of a sudden, life becomes not God trying to get something from me, but me in worship, giving back to God what he already owns anyways. That's the heart of the steward. A heart to give, a heart to give back to God in worship because of what he's done. And I think that's where this starts, this sacrificial giving, it starts with a right view of stewardship. But secondly, I think it also has to do with our thankfulness. With our thankfulness, and I think this is fairly obvious, but I also think it's worth stating that that friends, our financial generosity will always be in direct proportion to the thankfulness of our hearts. And I think even personal experience bears this out. In fact, if we were to scour the globe and were to bring as one to this place this morning the most generous Christians in the world today, here's what we'd find most of all. We'd find a group of people, men and women, full of gratitude. We'd find a a body of believers full of gratitude unto God. And, And why might that be? Well, because they understand that they've been saved by a who? By a generous God that they've been saved by God, and here's the gospel this morning, who saw us in all of our sin, saw Christ, his only begotten son, in all of his perfection, and then proceeded to say this, you know what, I'm not even gonna spare my son, but give him up for sinners. Like if that's not generosity, then I don't know what is. If that's not the supreme example of lavish generosity, then I'm all out of examples, and now here's the implication for us, brothers and sisters. If God the Father would not withhold the most precious thing in all the universe in the person of Jesus for us, well then in turn, in turn, how could we withhold anything ourselves? How could we with closed fists, say mine, 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 mine when we serve that God? It's incompatible and it's supposed to be because thankfulness begets generosity and then thirdly and here's our last word it's faith it's faith it's it's stewardship it's thankfulness and it's faith and this is perhaps the most simple of all yet nonetheless difficult if we are going to give of ourselves well then it's going to take faith yes faith in the person of God faith in the promises of God faith that even amidst our generosity God knows our needs and will meet our needs just the same And, and guys I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, isn't this what keeps us from generosity more than anything else? It's fear. It's fear that, that, man, what if I step out and show up for God, and in turn, He doesn't show up for me? Well, then what? Now, aren't these the kind of like internal wrestlings that we have month to month as we weigh generosity over and against frugality? And so if that's you, as it often is me, can I encourage us with this? Let me encourage us with this. God is more than able to provide for our needs, whether we're generous or not. Like, I feel like that just needs to be said this morning. Let's not forget who the God that we worship is. God is big, and God sees, and God knows. And so if God is calling us to generosity, well, then guess what? He's going to provide, amen? He's going to prove faithful, but of course, that does not mean that it will not take some faith of our own, because it will. Here's our fourth commitment. Number four, if Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ, well then fourthly, I must give my life to total collectivity. To total collectivity. Check out verse 46. Luke continues, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Just this last week, I came across a statistic which detailed the rather significant decline uh, in in in-person worship since uh, the initial lockdowns in March of 2020. And there's lots of data, there's lots of numbers, I'll spare you that, I'll just give you the cliff notes version this morning, essentially uh, the results of the data and therefore the argument of the article went basically like this, that what people want more and more uh, is, uh, according to this article, an online church experience. An online church experience where congregants can come as they want and go as they please and and tune in as they desire. And and apparently this is what people want, which led this this mega church pastor, as I was reading the article, to be quoted as saying this, quote, the staff at blank are looking into the online church model, online exclusive for what he calls the 13,000 people in their online community. He goes on, he speaks about this model. He says it's going to be shorter. It's going to be more compact. He's excited. It's going to appeal to the diminishing attention span of the online consumer. And then he closes his article with this, and I think this is what really caught my attention. He says mission, speaking of the mission of the church to reach the lost, can be found for the next 10 years, listen to this, in virtual reality. Now why is that significant for us this morning? After all, you might be thinking to yourself, well, well James, I'm here, aren't I? Or I'm, I'm watching online for a legitimate reason. I'm in church this morning. I'm, I'm worshiping the Lord. I'm doing what God calls me to, be, to do. Well, I think it's significant for at least this reason because what it reveals, and this is a sobering reality, is that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of professing Christians in this nation who see church as a product to be consumed rather than a people to be engaged. Who see church as as an event to be signed into rather than a body of believers to be doing life alongside. And as I was reading this article, I couldn't help but inspect my own heart and maybe I'll ask you this morning, I wonder how much of that type of thinking has seeped into us as well. And man, I even wonder if, if there's some of us in the room this morning who have begun to view church as, as something that you go to for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning without ever engaging beyond a handshake and a greeting. And so in love, I just say to us this morning, friend, that's not church in the New Testament, nor is it what we see here in the book of Acts. No, what we see here in the book of Acts, really all over but explicitly right here is a church that's committed to one another, right? is a church that's committed to to life on life fellowship. And what's so cool about this passage is we get both, we get corporate fellowship in the temple going together and smaller private gatherings in homes. And this was the DNA of this church. They were committed to one another. And why is that? Well, because church is a people. Church is a community. Church is a collective body of saints going from glory to glory. And so, friend, I ask you this morning, are you going to church or are you being the church? Brothers and sisters, are we attending something merely or are we a part of something? Man, I hope and I pray that we're a part of something. More importantly than that, I believe God desires each of us to be a part of something. And that's something, at least in our local context, is what God's doing in this church for his glory amongst these people but it's gotta be life on life. It's gotta be relational. Because otherwise, call it what you want, call it a production, call it a program, call it a show, just don't call it church, because church in the New Testament definition is life on life unto the glory of Christ, amen? Well, there remains one more commitment for us to inspect and, Lord willing, for us to imitate this morning, and it goes like this, it is the commitment to blameless integrity. And so one more, if Grace Church of the Valley is going to thrive for Christ, well then I must give my life to devoted spirituality, to infectious unity, to selfless generosity, to total collectivity, and now finally to blameless integrity. Let's finish in verse 47. This church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, and I believe in response to all that this church was, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I just love the way Luke uh, closes his description of the model church by giving us a word on their worship and by giving us a word on their integrity or their holiness. And so first, speaking of their worship, he says that they were praising God. And the idea here in the original language is, is that this was an ongoing kind of praise. This was was an ongoing kind of worship. And so wherever they were, right? Like at home, uh, in private, abroad, in the temple, wherever they found themselves, praise followed. And so they were a worshipful church. But secondly, they were also a holy church. They were a holy church. And this comes to the surface. I, I think this is great. As Luke describes this group, and don't miss this, as those who had what? Who had favor with all people what does that word favor mean well it simply means this it means to be respected it means to be reverenced it means to be highly esteemed in light of their character and that's who this church was which is interesting to me because if you read through the book of acts then you also know that this church though favored was also what it was also persecuted weren't they They were threatened, they they were opposed, they were hated by all, at least in some measure, while apparently at the very same time were respected by all in church. I think there's a lesson here, even for us. And listen, I don't think any of us are arguing the fact this morning that when it comes to the public perception of Christians, things are getting worse, not better, agreed? All it takes is is one glance to the public square, one glance to the high place, Washington, D.C., to to summarize that the Christian and the Christian's convictions are being depicted in many ways as what stands in the way of a prosperous America. And that's how things are trending. More and more that the Christian and and thus the church are being seen no longer as as the salt of the earth, but more and more as the scum of the earth. And and that's certainly true. I, I think I would affirm that. But Grace Church of the Valley, at the very same time, I think it's important that we collectively remind ourselves this morning that in the midst of all the hatred that has and will come our way for the cause of Christ, we are called just the same to an integrity of life that is otherworldly. And why do I say that? Well, I think I say that because I see the sinful tendency in my own heart, and maybe you see this in yours as well, that as the world gets darker and darker and darker, often what is our response? Well, it's become angry. Become frustrated and and embittered and and cold and, and harsh and short and argumentative and pessimistic and glass half empty at the expense of what? Well, at the expense of our witness in church, that's not who we are. Oh, yes, we we hold our convictions. Oh, yes, we we stand uh, against the forces of evil. We preach against ungodliness. Absolutely, but we do so always as Christians. We do so with an integrity and a godliness of life so that when spoken out against, here's the message. Man, I hate that person's convictions, but what can I say about their character? I mean, I hate what that person stands for, but what can I say about their integrity? They're kind, they're merciful, they're gracious, they're patient. And so yes, hate them, I must, but respect them, favor them, reverence them. I must also. Because at the end of the day, their lives are consistent with the Savior that they worship. And isn't that our goal even this morning as the church? To live a life consistent with that of Christ, testifies to Christ, in living and in dying. Five commitments for every single church member and you might have them memorized by now. I hope that you do. Devoted spirituality, infectious unity, selfless generosity, total collectivity and blameless integrity. Grace Church, may we give ourselves to these things. So many other things we could be distracted by so many other things that we could value and look for and give ourselves to, but these are the things in the eyes of God that he looks at and delights in. And if we're gonna be an Acts two church, which is what I believe God is, is calling us into in obedience here at GCV, as I said right at the beginning of our time, it's gonna take not one of us, not two of us, not an elder board, not a deacon board, it's gonna take every single church member raising their hand and saying, yes, I'll commit to that. Imperfect as it might be, stumbling along as I may, I will give myself daily to obedience to Christ in these crucial areas. Can you say amen to that?